So households were able to leverage the program to reduce the effects of the drought on their well-being and to reduce the stress that contributes to intimate partner violence. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode was recorded as a live taping of the podcast produced in partnership with CGIAR. CGIAR is a global research partnership for a food secure future dedicated to transforming food, land, and water systems in a climate crisis. This episode is part of a series on the nexus between climate and security. I moderated a panel discussion with four experts who discuss the interplay between climate adaptation on the one hand and poverty reduction and gender equality on the other. They offer insights on how climate adaptation can enhance social protection and vice versa, how social protection can support climate adaptation. The episode kicks off with some opening remarks from Shalini Roy, a senior research fellow in the Poverty, Gender, and Inclusion Unit at the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI. I then lead a moderated discussion featuring Dan Gilligan, director of the Poverty, Gender, and Inclusion Unit at IFPRI and co-lead of the CGIAR Gender Equality Initiative. Anna Solozarno, social protection advisor for climate and resilience at the World Food Program. Zara Nesbit Ahmed, research lead at the Center for Disaster Protection. And Rashi Abalashi, regional project coordinator and consultant climate change group at the International Institute for Environment and Development. This is a rich conversation about a vitally important topic. Please visit globaldispatches.org to get updates and find this and other episodes in this series. And now here's Shalini Roy. Hello. And a warm welcome, everyone, to the first installment of the CGIAR's three-part webinar series on the multiple benefits of climate adaptation. Today's episode is on multiple benefits of climate adaptation for poverty reduction and gender equality, with the focus on the role that can be played by gender-responsive social protection. I'm Shalini Roy, Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI, pleased to be hosting this episode. And on behalf of the CGIAR Initiative on Gender Equality, or HER Plus, Thank you for joining us today. Now, we are seeing compound crises across the globe today, and these are precipitated by multiple risk drivers coming together, including climate change, chronic poverty and inequality, conflict and insecurity, and displacement. Meanwhile, financing to address crises is limited and dwindling fast. Given this backdrop, we need to evaluate financing mechanisms around whether these mechanisms can address multiple of these risk drivers at the same time. In particular, whether they can create synergies across climate action, development goals, P2 
peace building, and prevention of displacement. And this is the overarching theme of this three-part webinar series. How can we invest in climate adaptation in a way that achieves multiple benefits across these objectives? In today's first episode, we focus on the synergies between climate adaptation on one hand and poverty reduction and gender equality on the other. We know the adverse impacts of climate change disproportionately hit those who are already most vulnerable and most constrained from adapting, which includes the poor and also includes women and girls. Women and girls are major contributors to food systems and have the potential to be the agents of change in leading climate adaptation. And yet due to entrenched social inequities, they have greater exposure and sensitivity to climate hazards and lower adaptive capacity so are disproportionately harmed by climate change. For example, we know that women and girls disproportionately experience health impacts from climate hazards. We know that when households need to resort to maladaptive coping, this most often affects women and girls. For example, they're most likely to reduce food consumption in times of crises or to have their assets sold off. They're also least likely to have the access to resources, information, networks, social capital, infrastructure, et cetera, to be able to adapt for example, to diversify livelihoods or take up climate smart practices. And all of these constraints are exacerbated by poverty. So climate adaptation has a natural link with poverty and gender. Today, we specifically focus on the role that social protection can play across all three of these objectives, climate adaptation, poverty reduction, and gender equality. Now by social protection, we mean a range of programs and policies that are aimed primarily at reducing poverty and vulnerability over the life cycle. In low and middle income countries, social protection most commonly includes what's called social assistance, like cash transfer programs, school feeding programs, public works programs, food assistance for assets programs, and these are often bundled with complementary activities like trainings. Social protection is widespread, often part of large scale national programs in low and middle income countries, including those affected by climate change, and its coverage has grown very quickly in light of the COVID pandemic. Social protection is also typically targeted already to the poor and often targets women. And because it provides resources and often access to information and infrastructure through trainings, it can address some of the constraints to climate adaptation. So it is a promising platform to simultaneously promote climate adaptation for many vulnerable people while reducing poverty and gender inequality. And in recent years, social protection stakeholders have increasingly shown interest in making social protection shock responsive or adaptive, thus aiming to intentionally respond to climate hazards or to anticipate these hazards. But careful design is critical to simultaneously promote these multiple objectives. We need to account for differences by gender, in particular, in needs and preferences around adapting to context-specific climate hazards, and we need to build these into program design. Insufficient attention to gender and social protection can actually exacerbate inequalities. On the other hand, attention to gender in these investments can help ensure that women and girls are able to benefit from and contribute to climate adaptation and poverty reduction so that women's and girls' climate resilience is increased. These nuances in designing social protection are what our distinguished panelists today will speak to, bringing insights from evidence and practice on how social protection can be designed to promote climate adaptation poverty reduction and gender equality, and how doing so can be a promising investment towards, toward which to direct climate financing. I turn it over now to our moderator for this webinar, Mark Goldberg. 
Uh, welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I'm the host of the Global Dispatches podcast. In our conversation today about the multiple benefits of climate adaptation for poverty reduction and gender equality is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast and will be available at globaldispatches.org. Uh, we are here to have a rich discussion about how climate adaptation can enhance social protection and vice versa, how social protection can support climate adaptation. I'm looking forward to a great conversation with our panelists, whom I'll introduce in just a moment. I will also have time to take questions from the audience. To ask a question, please leave it as a comment in the live stream, wherever you're watching. Uh, we'll be monitoring the comment section and try to get to as many of your questions as possible. Uh, for now, let me introduce our distinguished panel. Dan Gilligan is director of the Poverty, Gender, and Inclusion Unit at IFPRI and co-lead of the CGIAR Gender Equality Initiative. Uh, welcome, Dan. Hi, Mark. Thanks. Uh, Anna Solarzano is social protection advisor for climate and resilience at the World Food Program headquarters. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Zara Nesbit Ahmed is research lead at the Center for Disaster Protection. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. And Rasha Abalashi is Regional Project Coordinator and Consultant, Climate Change Group at the International Institute for Environment and Development. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, so again, welcome to everyone. And let's dive in. And Dan, I'll start with you. Can you talk a bit about the evidence gap for better alignment and harnessing mutual benefits of social protection and climate adaptation specifically? for women and youth. Sure, thanks, Mark. Um, so my colleagues and their partners have just completed a draft review of the evidence on harnessing social protection for climate adaptation for women, uh, which speaks directly to this. Uh, it's a really interesting study with many detailed lessons, but also several significant evidence gaps are identified there. So the first is that we have limited understanding about what kinds of livelihood diversification will truly reduce climate vulnerability for women. So for example, women's non-farm work, often thought to be a counter-cyclical source of income, is often still linked to agriculture upstream. And so this approach may be less effective as a coping strategy during extreme weather events. Another evidence gap is that uh, little is understood about the role that social assistance can play in promoting gendered resilience against slow onset climate events. So there's much more research on effective interventions to address rapid onset events. Uh, in many ways, they are easier to study, but as much there's much less work on effective interventions to address slow onset events. Third, little is known about how programs can bring individuals' perceptions of climate risk closer to actual climate risks. So this suggests that public service announcements or other information campaigns might be may be needed, but those should be tested as well. Fourth, there's little understanding of how to assess when it's optimal for individuals or households to migrate from a climate-affected setting, rather than attempting to cope with changes and rebuild there, particularly bearing in mind the gender trade-offs for migrating versus staying. Finally, for, on the evidence for women, little is known about the trade-offs between development and sustainability in this space. So for example, for women specifically, we need to understand whether the livelihood opportunities that could bring the most income in the short term are also those that promote climate resilience in the long term. And then for youth, even less is known about how climate adaptation can support their poverty alleviation and gender equality. 
The greatest focus is often on employment, understandably, because youth unemployment is high, but many youth are, are exiting agriculture in favor of jobs in other sectors where climate effects on youth are even less understood. So here, much more research is needed. Thanks, Mark. Back to you. Uh, thank you, Dan. Uh, Anna, next question to you. WFP is operating in complex and compound crises, implementing social protection and climate adaptation programs with governments. Are there any efforts to combine climate adaptation and social protection schemes that harness multiple benefits, especially for women? And what do those look like? Thank you, Mark. Yes, well, empirical evidence has shown that the combination of different social protection, disaster risk management, and climate change adaptation objectives and activities is more likely to support uh, people and specifically women, as opposed to, to only like short-term responsive measures. Um, so in WFP, we work with governments and partners, as, as you mentioned, to link social protection systems uh, and also the programs with our own climate services that we own in, 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 in WFP. These include climate information and analysis, also our pioneer work on anticipatory action, climate risk insurance and environmental services, among others. So, uh, but while we do this interlinkage, we also work very, very closely with governments to invest on the social protection system strengthening, because we really believe that if we don't strengthen systems in order for them to have large coverage, comprehensive and adequate support, uh, then we are really not maximizing the potential impacts that social protection can, can have on climate change adaptation and resilience. So uh, apart from these, we're also layering uh, these, these serve climate services with social protection, but also with women's digital financial inclusion work. And we're doing this with partners with the idea to help poor and vulnerable women uh, really have the means to, to, to adapt, not only to cope, but also to adapt it to the longer terms, uh, to the longer impacts uh, that climate change poses. So uh, this is not an easy challenge. Just to give you an example, one, 178 countries maintain legal barriers that prevent women's full economic participation. So for us as WFP, this is a key area of work. Um, so this threefold approach that we have is reflected in our work in Haiti, where simultaneously we have been working on the, let's see, like the upstream uh, with the government to develop a policy on social protection that set the base for, uh, for the main safety net right now that is called the Adaptive Social Protection for Increased Resilience, which focuses on climate vulnerable women, children and pregnant, uh, pregnant women and households, uh, that include these, these vulnerable people in their households. Um, and also, not only to provide support for, for emergency support and, and humanitarian response, but also for longer term adaptation uh, based on, on evidence. And at the same time, we have been working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to help the government build a digital public infrastructure so that women can receive these payments easily. And we have been reaching uh, more than 10,000 people with this. Um, so this is also, a, it's, it kind of builds like a, a structure, a vehicle where you can start layering the different uh, activities that will support eventually people, not only cope and women, and not only to cope, but also eventually adapt to climate change. Uh, thank you. Uh, Raji, Anna just mentioned Haiti. I was wondering if you could take us to South Asia and explain why gender and climate responsive social protection is, is relevant and particularly needed in an Indian or more generally a South Asian context? So, uh, Mark, I would, uh, uh, to, to address this, to understand why gender and climate responsive social protection programs are relevant in 
in in south asia or specifically in indian context to understand this we need to look at two factors one is the uh, exposure to climate risks in these regions and the vulnerabilities of the communities in these regions that you know that could act as predisposing factors so starting with south asia to support this i will just cite few figures from uh, two reports here if you look at the gross domestic um, climate risk analysis report which was released this year it states that asia dominated the uh, list of provinces facing the highest climate risk specifically in south asia if we again look at the another report that came out in 2022 which was uh, released by world meteorological organization uh, which was state of the climate in asia uh, in asia 2022 it also states that this is the region that is a uh, uh, disaster prone region and uh, in 2022 itself more than 80 disasters killed more than 5000 people <clears throat> and uh, 50 million with drought and floods being the most common hazard in these regions another global vulnerability index that also reports south asia and specifically countries like india nepal bangladesh sri lanka uh, among the most vulnerable uh, to drought and floods if we specifically look at india india has always been susceptible to wide scale uh, climate related risks uh, due to its various climate zones topography and ecosystems and it's the seventh most vulnerable country to extreme climate change events it's the fifth warmest year that was recorded this year so these this is these are the vulnerabilities of these regions and the second thing that we need to look at is the is the socio economical uh, disparities that exist in this region and specifically gender parity uh, in these regions so social protection programs are the programs uh, that have uh, that focus on addressing these socio economic vulnerabilities and with existing gender disparities in these regions uh, having climate sensitive uh, and gender gender sensitive and climate responsive social protection programs is is something that's need of the hour and we cannot ignore that thank you thank you um zara you authored an important evidence review on how gender responsive age sensitive social protection is related to the climate crisis can you summarize for those of us in the audience who might not have read that review what some of the main points and take home messages were uh yes and thank you so much mark uh so the evidence review wanted to understand the role social protection can play in minimizing and addressing negative impacts of climate crisis on children and women in low and middle income countries and the findings from the review could be organized into four categories and each of them have different degrees of evidence on the roles they play from a gender and age perspective so first is that social protection can play a role in reducing underlying risks that make women and children especially vulnerable to climate shocks and it can strengthen their resilience before the crisis hits so by for instance cash transfers can um help to increase the income and capacity to cope and in this category there's relatively large evidence overall but increasingly more evidence is needed from a gendered perspective in the second category social protection can support adaptation by helping children and women at individual household and community levels so that way they can adapt to more climate resilient livelihoods that could reduce their future susceptibility to shocks so again through cash transfers for instance it could promote the adaptation of more productive and climate resilient investments and there is a growing body of evidence in this category but again it's quite limited when it comes to gender uh, perspective 
The third category of evidence that was um, found in the paper was that social protection can make a critical contribution to strengthening disaster recovery. So in this sense, it can support households to build back better. So public work programs, for instance, could contribute to rehabilitating community assets and infrastructure. And while there is a long established practice on um, evidence for broader disaster recovery. Again, it's quite limited regressive evidence when you look at the gendered impacts. And the final um, category is that social protection can accelerate just transitions to green economies. So in this sense, it could create decent jobs in strategic sectors or strategic green sectors, including, for instance, the care economy. Um, it can also increase support for individuals and households that may be affected by green policies on jobs and livelihoods. And this area is quite new. And overall, the review just shows that due to these different levels of um, evidence, there's need to understand a bit more the different types of instruments that play a critical role and also understand how it can um, um, help in adaptation. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And just a reminder to the audience, please leave your questions as a comment wherever you are viewing this. You can do so on the social media app you're using or directly in the comment field if you're watching uh, the live stream via the website. Uh, again, please leave your, uh, your questions as comments and we'll get to them shortly. Uh, Dan, I want to go back to you. Uh, you're co-leading HerPlus, a CGIAR initiative that aims to leverage social protection to increase women's access to and control over resources in a climate crisis. Uh, can you share some initial evidence that can inform programming and policies to that end? Sure. Thanks, Mark. So I want to share some results from a study that IFPRI recently conducted in Ethiopia. So we worked with implementation partners there, World Vision, Air, Orta, and the Ethiopian government to conduct an impact evaluation designed as a randomized controlled trial to test the impact of what's called the graduation model social protection program called SPEAR. So SPEAR provided extremely poor households in Ethiopia's productive safety net program, their national safety net, with additional gender sensitive livelihood programming, including savings groups and asset transfers and nutrition programming, including providing nutrition information and supporting women through male engagement efforts and mental health services. So these households who depend primarily on agriculture for income and on livestock as their main source of assets, face really dire season insecurity exacerbated by frequent droughts. We tested whether the SPEAR program helped families adopt to periods of drought made worse by climate change and particularly looked at effects on women. So we did this by constructing a drought severity index using satellite data. And we mapped this index onto the household survey data that we collected for the evaluation. So we found that as expected, droughts occurring during the main growing season had measurable negative effects on both household food security and livestock holdings. And also saw that the, the, the droughts contributed to an increase in intimate partner violence uh, in the control group households. Uh, so we documented there that droughts have substantial negative effects and we had you know, careful measures of the size of those effects. In terms of the impact of the SPEAR program, the evaluation found that these households, households in the SPEAR project that were exposed to drought were very well protected. The program had significant positive impacts on these households in terms of improving, lively, uh, improving food security and also their livestock holdings. In terms of impacts on women and women's outcomes, we saw improvements in diet, women's dietary diversity, 
and women's BMI and lower experience of intimate partner violence. So households were able to leverage the program to reduce the effects of the drought on their well-being and to reduce the stress that contributes to intimate partner violence. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Um, Anna, to you again, WFP's mandate is to save lives and change lives. Most of the existing social protection schemes focus on shock responsive social protection. How can we move towards a more adaptive or even transformative climate adaptation through social protection schemes? Uh, thank you, Mark. I think this is a very important question. Uh, there isn't like a, a, a key formula or a magic formula, but one of the things that we have explored at WFP is like some principles on how to like really start uh, mainstreaming and um, the impact of, of social protection on climate adaptation. And just to, to give you like a brief on this, first of all, we need to continue strengthening routine social protection systems. If we don't have strong systems, we can't even think about not only like support adaptation, but, but the basic uh, element, like the amazing objectives of social protection, such as, as protecting people throughout their life cycles cannot be met. Second is harmonization of the objectives of climate change strategies and social protection, included on the NDCs, NAPAs, etc. The third and very important from the programmatic perspective is the use of climate vulnerability analysis and climate change projections. This is something that is barely done by, by governments, by social protection programs. And, all, and, in, and here we need to understand how these impacts, how this, uh, how this climate information can better also inform how girls, women, boys and other marginalized populations will be impacted by these shocks. Um, here, this will also help, for instance, informing the transfer size, complement, what type of complementary services you need, because this is something also very important. It's not social protection on its own. We need complementarity. Uh, here, as I already mentioned, is working with climate services and also the RM services, so, so we have a comprehensive package. Um, taking into consideration local socioecological context, it's not. Uh, it's often the case that social protection is quite top, top down, and it doesn't take into consideration local dynamics or even like the ecological systems how they work. And we can be creating spillover effects that might be positive or negative. So this information should be really start integrated into into the social protection designs. Um, and of course, as I mentioned before, also strengthening the financial protection um, of women via digital financial inclusion and, and other forms. So it's not an easy task. But at least we need to have clear like the direction and the vision. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you. Uh, Rashi, can you tell us about what some of the best practices are related to gender and climate responsive social protection? What strategies have you seen that have been proven to be effective and what contributed to their success? So, uh in this area is not really well explored and researched. And when I'm saying that, I specifically mean about understanding gender uh, responsive, uh, climate sensitive social pro protection programs, both the things together. So I'll bring in uh, her experience from the social protection research that I have been part of uh, in 2020 and 2021, where uh, we undertook a research to understand the climate resilience potential of uh, India's public works program, MGNRGS. And, uh, and the objective was to examine the potential role uh, of MGNRGS to reduce women's vulnerability to climate risk. So uh, let me start with this, that you know, this program was initially uh, uh, designed uh, to, for poverty reduction. And, uh, but by 
by the by default in its design there has been a element of climate um, uh, 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 element of gender uh, sensitivities so it does take into consideration so there are provisions uh, in in the program uh, which take into consideration uh, the vulnerabilities of and the challenges that the women face uh, for example like uh, there there is a provision where uh, where women uh, are provided crash facilities at work sites or they are provided work in areas uh, that are um, uh, closer to their uh, place so this is one of the example where it's being done but you know with respect to implementation and monitoring of these provisions how they are being implemented whether they are being implemented properly that is something that that really uh, we need to look at and that requires a lot of work thank you uh, thank you uh, zara there's a growing operational convergence between disaster risk finance and social protection notably cash transfer programs, which have been mentioned a few times so far today. Uh, in your experience, how does gender fit into the links between disaster risk finance and social protection? Uh, that's an excellent question, Mark. And the honest answer is there are pieces of the puzzle that still need to be figured out. But I'll respond in two parts. So um, just to say disaster risk finance refers to the systems of budgetary and financial mechanisms to credibly pay for a specific risk and usually arranged before a potential um, shock. And a particular category of um, disaster risk finance is prearranged finance, which has unique characteristics that also include having prearranged um, triggers that will lead to being payout. And a trigger could be for a hurricane of a determined magnitude or an earthquake of particular magnitude. Now, very few countries currently have robust disaster risk financing strategies that link to um, shock response to social protection and explain where the money will come from or how different financial instruments can be used most effectively. But one example is in Malawi. So their um, social cash transfer program, the government is connecting the disaster risk financing instruments, such as um, insurance, um, with with that to be able to introduce a shock responsive mechanism that will scale up the cash transfer when um, vulnerable households are impacted, for instance, by food insecurity that may be caused by droughts. And currently the cash transfer program in Malawi has the mechanism to scale up in six districts and the government wants to expand it a bit more. There are other examples from WFP, um, which Anna mentioned um, previously, and Ethiopia is also one of them. Now, the second part of the response is when you look at linking it to gender, there's very little um, evidence. So if you look at risk pools, for instance, and risk pools is where um, countries spread the financial risks evenly among different contributors. African risk capacity is one example. It's a specialized agency of the Africa Union that um, provides financing in events of extreme weather events. Now, Africa risk um, capacity has come on board to assist Malawi governments in scaling up their social protection um, program. But when you look at gender within ARC, that's the Africa Risk Capacity, while it's a key strategic priority and one of their aims is to mainstream gender, an evaluation of the program in 2022 and to say not many um, disaster risk finance instruments have been evaluated. But that evaluation found that while gender was quite ambitious, there's still a lot to to be done. And there's um, some progress also in terms of implementation and also around monitoring and evaluation. So pretty much there is evidence, but there's still a lot that needs to be done. Thank you. Uh, thank you.
Uh, so I will have one last round of questions for the audience before uh, before we turn, pardon me, I'll have one last round of questions for the panelists before we turn to the audience for questions. So do get your questions in using the comment field. Uh, so this last question will be the same to each of you. Think of it as something of a, of a lightning round. Take a minute or two to answer the question. And uh, Dan, we'll start with you. What is an important missing piece that could move to scale social protection with climate adaptation benefits that you or your organization can address? This is an action item. Sure, no, thanks, Mark. Uh, appreciate this question. So our research has shown um, that we need to, we need more gender sensitive social protection programming. So uh, Shalini said this very clearly at the top and Anna was also um, bringing this in very strongly. So. When you look at the actual designs of social protection programs, although many of them are, are provide transfers to women, um, the designs otherwise are not strongly gender sensitive. Um, so they target transfers to women, but fail to address women's weaker asset position, more limited rights and voice, the lack of agency coming from restrictive social norms, and frankly, policies that favor men. Um, so. We know from our experience when working with governments that they're, they're very open actually to trying to design programs uh, it, that include more attention to women, um, but they need the evidence and they, they need good ideas. Uh, so we have wonderful partners working with us in this effort and on this research, and we want to continue to encourage others to join us in designing and, tester and testing gender sensitive social protection to help women adapt to climate hazards. Thanks. Uh, thank you. And on a same question to you, what can we do to scale up progress around this question that we're all discussing today? Yeah, I think there are still several dots to connect. I think like, I, I see two main challenges on this agenda. One is the, there is a lack, I, we have already discussed it, uh, generally a lack of gender sensitivity across the policy cycle within the social protection system in general. But at the same time, from the adaptation side and the links with social protection, we still don't have, number one, enough evidence and that affects also the buy-in that we might have with government counterparts. So there's siloing, there's lack of coordination. And I kind of feel that, and I will say this, like uh, social protection really requires some sort of like paradigm shift to really maximize the impacts to climate adaptation. So I think uh, one of the things is to engage with governments, uh, try to help them also in terms of like the, the te technical capacity bring our own work as a proof of concept as well uh, into the, for them to see like the actual impacts that you can that can be achieved when you start layering these different intervention activities with a really strong gender focus. Uh, thank you. And Rashi, your thoughts? Uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll answer uh, uh, with the uh, point of the kind of research and background evidence collection that is required in this field, because first of all, there's a huge a gap as in to understand and to really define what is what would be a gender sensitive climate responsive social protection program and for that we need to understand on how the social cultural con context and you know the power axis of social differentiation the differentiations uh, influence uh, and how they risk uh, how at risk people are impacted by climate change and uh, uh, we also need to understand the synergies with relevant policies and climate change, dis disaster risk re reduction, and gender equality at the regional and uh, national level. And uh, also, we need to focus on having anticipatory social protection programs rather than 
know, just limiting ourselves to making these adaptation programs. And these cannot be, you know, end uh, kind of a programs that are end to all, but something that's a continuous process. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And Zara, to you. Uh, I would say at the Center for Disaster Protection, we're currently conducting a study exploring the opportunities for and potential risks of actually channeling disaster risk finance through social protection systems. And plans are also underway to explore what it means for disaster risk finance to consider gender and socially inclusive dimensions when trying to plan, prepare and pay for disasters. And we think this is important because for disaster risk finance to contribute to protecting the most vulnerable, there needs to actually be an understanding of the diverse needs and vulnerabilities of different social groups and how to respond to them. Um, so that's that's where we can um, contribute. Uh, thank you. So that wraps up my questions for you. Uh, we do have questions from the audience. I'm going to bring up Peter Lauderach of CGIAR, who's been monitoring our question feed. Uh, Peter, over to you. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. So we have a very busy chat here with a lot of uh, remarks and comments. So let me just uh, pick a few here. So we have a, a question from Raramai Campbell. Um, she says, thinking more long-term, how do we design social protection as a pass rather than, a, than an end to ensure the benefits people gain from schemes are sustainable once they're no longer supported? So yeah, I mean, I guess there's a question that uh, any of you could respond to and has uh, probably some experience on. I don't know who wants to start. Peter, I might come in here, um, but encourage others to join me. So, um, yeah, this is a really good question. So, and there's sort of two parts to it, in in, in my view. So, um, one is how do we think about social protection as a path and not an end in itself? And so, this is really the motivation behind uh, graduation model modalities, um, which are, are of many types. But one of the ideas behind graduation models is very sort of big push investments is to really improve the uh, poverty reducing effects of social protection and essentially help people exit poverty in a sustainable way. Um, they are also sometimes uh, designed explicitly to help people exit the national safety net and to give them kind of a bridge to uh, a future where they're no longer recipients of those benefits. Um, I think the second part of the question is really about sustainability of the effects of social protection programs. On that, we need a lot more evidence. Um, IFRI is doing work here and many of our partners are, are as well by following up uh, past evaluation studies. And, um, you know, we're seeing a common result is that some of the, many of the benefits fade with time, um, but there are some important examples where benefits actually are quite sustained, um, including on outcomes for women related to intimate partner violence, for example. Thanks. Super. Can I also include something? Please. So I think also, I mean, let's not forget what is the core purpose of social protection. Uh, I mean, the, in the developed world, we all talk about social security. And in the developing world, this doesn't, like people don't really have like the access to all the different mechanisms that are available in, in, in the developed world. So I think it's important to understand the difference between the protective and preventive component or objective of social protection and that that is promotive. And the reason that I say this is that because now we are like clearly in a world that is compounding several risks and shocks, more than out now than ever, we see that livelihoods are not linear. It's not just about injecting cash and then people escape poverty and they are uh, resilient 
forever, right? No, people really need to be uh, mindful and evidence shows this that whenever they know that at least they have that safety net, they are uh, they, they can invest a little bit more on productive activities. They will, their food security and their nutrition will be protected. And, and eventually when you layer that safety net or that, that, that protective or pre uh, preventive role of social protection with other activities, then you can really start um, kind of having uh, impacts at other scales and not only on the coping side of things. Super spot on and uh, exactly what we're discussing here, right? The multiple benefits. Uh, anybody else from the panel who wants can to I come more questions, please? Yeah, so uh, I completely agree to what uh, uh, Rarame has, uh, uh, has put in here. Uh, and I will again bring an example of uh, uh, NGNRGS here. So this was initially a core development strategy, which was planned. This program was initially to reduce poverty. Then it moved to uh, a more uh, program that focused on the, you know, um, um, ensuring uh, or additional income source of income. And now if you look at this program, there are many other elements that have been added to it as in like, the NRM, uh, National Resource Management component that has been added, where many works that are uh, linked to, you know, uh, soil and water conservation works that are part of this. This work program is also working in convergence with many other programs. So this is how this program has evolved, uh, as in like, uh, you know, it has evolved with respect to the needs and demands that have come in. Similarly is the case of PDS, the Public Distribution System Program in India. So that has also evolved a component of portability has come in uh, in that program so that's that's what i would like to add here Super. thank you so much uh, then we have another uh, very interesting uh, question from julian iguera from colombia can you explore more on the strategies used by climate adaptation and social protection programs to avoid unwanted negative consequences during their implementation such as exacerbating ongoing conflicts Anybody interested to take that question? I can start. Um, so I really like this question because I don't think that the concept of maladaptation is addressed enough. Uh, and I think this is very important because to me, like one of the key elements of social protection, if we can't achieve our like very ambitious goals of supporting longer term adaptation and resilience, at the very least, social protection should not be uh, creating maladaptation. And I don't think this is something that uh, is still being uh, it's, is being internalized, uh, and it requires to an analysis of, as I was saying on my previous interventions, of the local context from the from the ecological perspective, but also from the social uh, social perspective. So a good social protection design will consider the local dynamics, including the risk of conflict, and will have a design that is not perpetuating or. Uh, yeah, or creating future vulnerability, whether this is from the climate side or other type of, of shocks. And can I build on what Anna is saying? Because in addition to that, um, it would also pay in looking at the local context, it would also pay attention to the social identities of the people within that community. So understanding what the gender identities are, what the age makeup is, the different um, poverty status that would also be able to make sure you don't have any unintended consequences. Thanks, Zara. Peter, I might come in as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it is it's a it is a really good question. Um, the in terms of 
evidence on maladaptation. So there is some limited evidence on this. Um, there's, there's quite a bit of research just looking at whether, uh, whether transfers themselves, cash transfers in particular, lead to, say, increases in, uh, in prices locally. Um, for the most part, that is not the case. There's, um, there are a couple of studies that have found um, some price effects in terms of contributing to inflation. So it, it's plausible. I don't think that's the most common um, type of effect that we see with the, with the types of programs that are out there. Another one that people often worry about is labor disincentives. You give people a large income transfer and you think that maybe they're not going to be as inclined to, to work. Um, that has really been refuted in the evidence through multiple studies. Um, in general, these are targeted to very, very poor households who need, instead they, they use those, those resources to improve well-being, nutrition for their households and often invest in assets and, and income. The question about, about conflict is a really important one. And I think we need a lot more evidence there. So there is evidence, um, very careful evidence that links um, variability in prices and, and steep price increases to contributing to conflict in Africa. Um, so to the extent that we thought social protection is, at, is kind of leading to price growth, um, we could be worried about that. But so far, we're not seeing a lot of that. Um, but there are certainly other, other theories of change, right? Other impact pathways through which social protection and climate could be contributing on the conflict side. So um, lots more to do there. Thanks. Super. Thanks. Um, then uh, we have a related question from, question from Ibukun Taiwo from Nigeria. Uh, so what barriers exist to the successful implementation of programs that combine social protection with climate adaptation? Barriers, what comes to mind? Yeah, I can can I come oh, sorry, go ahead, please, because I'm, <laughs> please go. Uh, I would say having, uh, so we have a lot of uh, complex climate information available, uh, but it is so, uh, complex and in a form that cannot be, you know, uh, understood or uh, it's not in a usable form. So having right kind of climate information systems in place, uh, which the community is comfortable uh, using. So this is this is one uh, aspect, I think, that that needs to be worked on. And My it's currently tangible. Yeah. Excellent. And I will um, bring in from a uh, sex and age um, perspective is also just the, the availability of certain type of sex and age disaggregated data that could also be an issue and then if you're also bringing other types of social dimensions if you're interested in for instance migration status uh, refugee status that also gets it tricky because so how do you monitor and evaluate when you don't have certain um, types of data Very good. Thank you so much. And um, so we have another question here, a bit, a bit different. Um, so social protection and climate change adaptation both suffer from insufficient funding, particularly in fragile countries. So that's why we're talking today about uh, aligning objectives, right? But then on the other side, uh, other side, how can we make sure not to pit one one against the other? when we call for in increasing use of existing climate funds for adaptive and climate sensitive social protection. So I think that's a very, very important question, right? So I mean, the whole discussion today is about uh, multiple benefits, but then how do we don't forget the one or the other? And um, yeah, any, any thoughts about that? 
I can I can come in. I wonder, I'm I'm looking at Anna as well, wondering what she might be thinking about what World Food Program sees in, in this space, right? So, um, we with our with our partners, World Food Program, and other UN institutions and governments, you know, we we do see that tension, right? So donors that are providing uh, large scale resources to help support the social protection agenda and help governments design and implement, you know, effective large scale social protection programs. Um, are, have now taken on most that we work with have seriously taken on the climate agenda, and that's really welcome. Um, and we've joined them and sort of working together on that shared agenda. Um, but the resources are limited, and so we are struggling to kind of maintain kind of the balance in a sort of what ends up being a growing agenda. Um, we find as we're doing here, right, we're trying to bring together where these things meet and overlap. And so social protection, gender and climate change, it's its a core part of what our gender equality initiative is focused on now. And we, we're finding instead by looking at these as, as related interventions and the intersectionality in terms of the effects um, that we're not, leave, hopefully we're not leaving too much off the table, but instead sort of keeping up to date with what's really needed. That, that's the hope, thanks. Very good. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, I think from my side, what I can add is that uh, I think there is a competition, and definitely, and it's like the human from the humanitarian side, the climate side, and also the development side. Um, and I think it's about being clear about what social protection can do, uh, and what social protection can do is dependent on its context. In some contexts, it's about building strong social protection systems for them to have a good delivery system and a good um, management information systems, for example, would be already something that is very important for that specific context. Uh, for other contexts, we can we can actually think about more complex and more ambitious programs that integrate climate change objectives very explicitly and that are contributing to different dimensions. That is great. So I think uh, and that will probably will tap more into climate funding. So I think it's about like really understanding the, the, the opportunities, but also the limits of social protection in each given context. And because whatever engagement we have from the financing perspective, we, we have to also be clear on, on what messages we're sending no, from the social protection community, at least. Um, uh, yes, so that's what I wanted to complement. Yeah, no, that's great. So, so bundling has its limits. Uh, we need to be very careful about that. So on, on that, uh, I have another question here. Um, what is the potential of bundling social protection mechanisms with climate insurance? Um, well, just very quickly on that one. Uh, well, because WFP uh, has a portfolio on climate insurance uh, and we work uh, from the micro perspective, meso and macro as well. And we have been working uh, with our climate colleagues to really start layering uh, social protection, o not only as a vehicle of the money out, so from the macro perspective that the, the money injection comes to the social protection system and the social protection system is used to deliver the support to those most vulnerable. This is very important because it, it, um, it, it guarantees that the, the, that financing will be people-centered because it's focusing on the most vulnerable, no? that are the people, uh, people protected by social protection. Uh, but also we have other programs like R4, uh, I was mentioned the Ethiopia case, which is microinsurance. So how can, for instance, a social protection program can layer the microinsurance to its uh, to the package? And in, we have uh, this model with, where, where basically, for instance, public works programs beneficiaries, instead of giving paying with money a premium, 
uh, they will pay with additional days of, the, of those public works programs and in exchange they will get the premium and this is a, a project that is uh, by WFP and, and, and governments and we have this approach of AFOR in, in different countries and we're exploring elsewhere and how to start linking it much more with the, with the social protection system because we do believe that these, these programs of insurance have um, better impact when, when they are layered. It's not only the insurance, but it's also the access to savings, the access to training, the digital financial inclusion, but also the regularity of a social protection mm -hmm. uh, program. And if I can build on what Anna is saying, so within the center, that's really pretty much what we're trying to do and try to understand. So in places like uh, Malawi, what they've done, as I gave in the previous example, is they have used that from whenever a drought is to either increase the number of participants in their social protection program or to increase the, the amount of the cash transfer. Similarly, Ethiopia's public safety net program, phase four, also had an element of um, disaster risk finance in it. So when there was an emergency, they could do a temporary scale up. But what we also really need to understand within this field when it comes to crisis financing and disaster risk financing is that there is only a very limited amount that is arranged in advance of a shock. So we've done some research and it's about 1.3% of the existing amount in 2021 that was around 71 billion. So that's also why we're trying to understand how you can channel it through social protection systems. Super interesting. Uh, any other views on, on insurance and social protection? Otherwise, we can move to the next question. Um, I maybe can have just an example of the Caribbean because it kind of speaks to the previous comment on ARC, where we did this, for instance, because sometimes a challenge with insurance is that the government is not necessarily going to, to focus on social protection. So we had an agreement with the government when, when the premium from CRIF in the Caribbean uh, reached the government, we would top up. The, the support and then the, the 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 financing would be delivered through the social protection system and with this this mechanism in Nicaragua, uh, Nicaragua and also in Dominica and we're exploring these these approaches also with Arc Replica but also other like risk financing pools. Okay, super. And another thing, apologies, yes. just to add that builds on what Anna is saying, but also something that was briefly mentioned about anticipatory action. It's also really important to think about triggers when you're designing these things. At what level will you um, be able to release the funds that then go through the social protection system? Thanks. Excellent. So last question. So we have just about uh, four more minutes. Um, so any uh, the reactions to that question would be great. When programs combine the objective of social protection and climate resilience, does this result in complete changes in practices on the ground? And if so, what do they look like? It's a tough question. I can see everybody's thinking. I, I could come in with an example, Peter. Um, we're designing, um, we're so beyond the design actually so we're working on a, a study with uh world vision care and Porta and the ethiopian government in ethiopia um that uh her plus is is supporting around designing uh sustainable land management practices and encouraging their take up um for women we're doing this as a bundled intervention um and so women will get access to uh to trees for the the benefits that they provide to uh soil and, and water management um compost and also uh home gardening package and this is delivered sort of together as a single package um the bundling was explicitly included to try to make the overall 
package more, both more kind of attractive for women and more climate sensitive. So um, any any one of these three would have, we deemed to be insufficient. And so um, the idea that we had explicit objectives of trying to promote climate adaptation and specifically promote their take up by women required kind of bringing these things together. Um, as we're learning about it, we're very focused on sort of the way in which kind of additional involvement in these activities by women is going to increase their time burden. Um, so in our baseline survey, we, we looked at, uh, we asked households how much women and men are involved in each of these activities um, and some of their related time burdens. So that's something that we'll study. And then as part of the study itself, we're actually experimenting with delivering this package directly to women in one, in one part of the study and in another experimental treatment arm, women and men are being introduced to the package together in their families. Um, and they have, we spend a day with them uh, doing an exercise to essentially determine how labor allocation should be worked out. Um, so we're at the, sort of the early stages here, but, but we're taking on this challenge directly in that study. Thank you. Thanks, very concrete examples from Ethiopia. Thanks, Dan. Um, any other response? Reaction? Um, I, will, I will just quickly share one example from India, uh, which is again with the uh, MG Nargis program, where this new tool has been introduced, uh, which was developed uh, uh, for you know helping planning under MG Nargis uh, in a climate resilient way. And uh, we followed a tech plus people approach and this, this uh, tool is climate resilience information system for planning under engine energies. And here we engage with marginalized communities and uh, women. And although it's in a very nascent stage and it's, uh, we are not I mean, in a position to, uh, you know, we do not have uh, some concrete impacts as in like, what, what one major initial impact or uh, the change that we have seen is mobilization, community mobilization, more participation of women. That has happened because you know this technology uh, provides information in, in a very simplified uh, manner, which the, which the women and the community uh, can understand and can use it, and can participate at the uh, at the village level planning uh, using this tool. So that is one example, uh, which 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 I can think of. Uh, you're on mute, I think. Yes, very, very concrete example. Thank you so much. So at this point, uh, after a very rich discussion, I will hand over to Shalini Roy, who will uh, try to summarize the discussion that we had here. So thank you so much. Thank you. I have the privilege and challenge of closing this webinar with a short summary of some points from this very rich discussion that you've heard today. Um, it's hard to pull out specific points since um, so many interesting nuances were brought out, but we've heard from all of the panelists, I think, that social protection is very promising to bring together with climate services, to bring together with um, layered gender interventions, to consider how we can link it better with disaster risk financing. There's a lot of interest, emerging efforts and evidence around doing this, but there is still a lot that remains for us to work through together. And in a prior conversation with Rashi on this, I remember she said the best is yet to come. And that's, I think, the sense that's coming through. There's a lot of um, really novel ideas coming through and we have a lot to learn on what works and taking it forward. So one specific area is on evidence. 
Um, we've heard a lot of interesting evidence that is um, developing. We've heard a lot of interesting um, principles and practices that are being tried out. Um, from that, I think we've heard that, you know, we have a good understanding that social protection can build resilience in a way that helps prepare for climate hazards before they occur, including for women. We have some understanding that social protection can strengthen coping, disaster recovery, even though the evidence is limited for women. Some promising emerging evidence, for example, from the study in Ethiopia is quite compelling um, on how social protection can not only protect households and women, um, sorry, not only protect households, but also um, protect women specifically, including in terms of their diets, in terms of reducing intimate partner violence in the context of drought. Um, we think that social protection can also promote adaptation in the longer term, moving beyond coping and moving to um, being better prepared and more resilient. If we layer it with the right complementary activities, um, as Anna flagged in terms of climate services, promoting women's empowerment and addressing women's needs um, through efforts like digital financial inclusion and some of the um, recommendations that Rashi gave from her experience in India, um, really interesting efforts. Again, there's little evidence actually testing what happens when you do these, and that is an area that we all want to um, bring more of, particularly looking at gender dimensions. Um, as Zara very interestingly pointed out, there's a role for social protection to accelerate just transitions to green economies. This area is quite new. We really need to better understand this, particularly for gender. And as several people pointed out, we really need more data. Monitoring and evaluation needs to anticipate that we want this information for us to study it. Several people also articulated that we need to clarify our objectives for specific contexts to understand what this means for design. What does it mean for us to support women's climate adaptation? What are the vulnerabilities and needs that we're trying to address? What can we realistically expect social protection to do given that its core um, role is reducing poverty over the life cycle? This is the foundation. We need to keep that strong in order for layering anything on top to be effective. Um, within that, we've heard a lot of ideas about how you can support um, moving from coping to adaptation, um, linking social protection with insurance, anticipatory action, bringing together disaster risk financing, um, giving more attention to making sure that we're not just, for example, targeting transfers to women, but actually making sure that those transfers empower women, um, all of the nuances around what actually works in specific contexts when you come down to the nitty gritty of design. So there's a lot of work left for us to do. The CGIR Initiative on Gender Equality, or HER Plus, is actually studying exactly these topics. As our panelists have said earlier, this work requires all of us working together, and so we look forward to working with you. I thank our wonderful speakers for their insights, our moderators, Mark Goldberg and Peter Laderach, our behind-the-scenes support, and each and every one of you for your excellent questions and participation today. Really look forward to continuing this conversation with you all. Thank you very much with, for engaging with us on this important discussion. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. 
And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.